You are listening to the Through the Bible Studio Series with Pastor Nate Oldridge. Join us as we continue our study through the Old Testament book of Exodus. Here's Nate. Well, in Exodus chapter 33, we get the aftermath of the golden calf incident. And you remember Moses had come down from the mountain and had purified uh, the nation, had dealt with the nation. It was a swift judgment from the Lord upon the nation for their crime and for their infant idolatry and a kind of mixing the worship of the Lord with the worship of this golden calf. And the Lord said in verse 1 of Exodus 33 to Moses, Depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt, to the land of which I swore, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, To your offspring I will give it. And so in the first verse, God, in one sense, is responding to the previous prayer of Moses. In chapter 32, verse 13, Moses, as he cried out to God, prayed and reminded God of the promise that he had made to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob. And so God is alluding to the fact that he is conscious of the promise that he's previously made, that he remembers the covenant and that the people of Israel are still the covenant people of God, even though their rebellion and their sin has been grave. But he announces in verse 2, Something rather ominous. He says, I will send an angel before you and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Go up, verse 3, to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you lest I consume you on the way for you are a stiff-necked people. Now, the question here, of course, is, Exactly what is God referring to? He had previously said that his angel would go before them. But in previous mentions of his angel, it's obvious that the angel is likely pre-incarnate Christ. It's God himself going before the people. But here in verse 2 and 3, God announces to Moses That he will give them the victory. They'll defeat the Canaanites, Amorites, Hittites, Perizzites, Hivites, the Jebusites. They will have full and complete victory. This was good news. But he tells them that he will send his angel before them, but that he will not go up among them. So the question is, who is this angel that God is referring to? Personally, I still think God is referring to pre-incarnate Christ going before the people. Part of the reason that I believe this is because he says in verse 2, I will send an angel before you and I will drive out. He doesn't say, and he will drive out. He says, and I will drive out. So personally, I believe that this angel is still pre-incarnate Christ, that the Lord himself is going with them. But in another sense, he says in verse 3, I will not go up among you. In other words, my power is going to go with you, but my presence is not going to be with you. My protection, my guidance, my victory is ensured, but my personal presence dwelling amongst the 
tabernacle coming in the cloud of glory, the pillar of smoke and fire. And I think so God is saying, I think he's saying, listen, personally, I can't be with you in that very present kind of way. I can't have that direct contact with you because you are unholy. You're a stiff-necked people. And if I go with you, I will consume you on the way. If you persist in this rebellion, you persist in this sin, there's no way that you and I can dwell peacefully together. Now, I think that all of this was designed to get a response from the people, to see what the people would say, to reveal and expose their hearts. So verse 4, when the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned, and no one put on his ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, say to the people of Israel, you are a stiff-necked people. If for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. So now take off your ornaments that I may know what to do with you. Therefore, the people of Israel, verse 6, strip themselves of their ornaments from Mount Oreb onward. So in verse 4, 5, and 6, you have these references to the ornaments of the people of Israel. Uh, these are likely their rings, their necklaces, their bracelets, their anklets. And so later in the Old Testament, we'll see moments where times of great weeping required the people to put on sackcloth and ashes. These were garments of mourning. At this season in their history, the sign of mourning was to take off these different ornaments, this jewelry. It was a sign of mourning before the Lord. Uh, we might not take off ornaments. We might not put on sackcloth and ashes, but in each individual culture, there are appropriate ways for us to mourn before the Lord, to weep over our sin. And this was good for the people of Israel. They were humbled over God's rebuke. They were humbled over their sin. They, and they needed this humbling in their lives. And they were mourning, not just because of the discipline for their sin. They'd experienced that in Exodus 32. But now there's a second part and a second phase of their mourning. And it's mourning over not just the discipline, but the distance of God from them because of their pride. You know, this is one of the ways that God will sometimes chasten his people. You see that in times of rebellion against the Lord. David cried out concerning his own personal grave rebellion and sin with Bathsheba and the murder of Uriah. He declared, you know, there was rottenness in my bones. God had, in a sense, departed from David's life. He was not experiencing the full riches of fellowship and relationship with God. And that distance should cause mourning in the hearts of God's people. James says in James 4 verse 6 that God gives more grace. Therefore it says, quoting the Old Testament, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, verse 10, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. You know, during those moments of dryness, during those moments where it seems as if the presence of God is not practically and experientially with us, 
as a result of our own sin and rebellion, it's good for us to cry out to the Lord in mourning and in repentance and ask for his presence to go with us once again and to cling to the Lord in that kind of way. And so the people of Israel, they longed for God's special presence with them in the wilderness, wanted his presence with them when they went into the promised land. And to them, that of course meant a pledge of his acceptance of them as a people. And so they mourned before the Lord. Now in verse 7, there's an interesting little paragraph. It says, now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp. And he called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. Now, the question is, what is this particular tent? And it seems as if, one thing that's obvious is, this is not the tabernacle. But the tabernacle was also called the tent of meeting. So what was this additional tent that Moses had built? Well, it appears that this tent is a temporary tent. You see, God had given the directions for the building of the tabernacle and the instruments that would be placed inside of it, but there was still the need for that tabernacle and all of its instruments to be built, the garments for the priesthood. It would take quite a while. So in the meantime, or interim, Moses had another tent that he referred to as the tent of meeting, and it was a place that he would go and interact with God, as we'll see in a moment. But it's interesting here, on the heels of this rebellion from the people of Israel, this tent was placed outside of the camp. They could go outside of their community, and from a distance they could worship God. But he was not right there in the midst of Israel at this particular point in their history. They went outside of the camp to speak with and to worship the Lord. And whenever Moses, verse 8, went out to the tent, all the people would rise up and each would stand at his tent door and watch Moses until he had gone into the tent. And when Moses entered the tent, verse 9, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent and the Lord would speak with Moses. And when all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise and worship, each at his tent door. Now this is fascinating. It describes the personal relationship of Moses with God and his personal relationship with God and how it affected and flowed to the rest of the nation. Uh, Moses would get up out of his tent and apparently the people would watch him leaving his own personal tent. And when he walked out to this tent of meeting, each person would stand at his tent door and watch for Moses to go into the tent of meeting. They didn't go in themselves, but they watched Moses. Then they would wait. Moses would enter the tent and the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent. The Lord would speak to Moses. And as a response to the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship, each at his own tent door. So what you have here is the 
walk or relationship with God from Moses, you have that affecting an entire nation. You know, the truth of the matter is that although our walk with God might not affect an entire nation, it does affect the body of Christ overall, and it will directly impact someone's life. You know, it might be your children, it might be your spouse, it might be your co-workers, it might be your friends, it might be your church. In fact, I would go so far as to say it will be, at the very least, all of those people groups. But you have no idea how your personal walk with God could and will impact generations. So often we're very short-sighted when it comes to our relationship with God. We think of it like we sometimes mistakenly think about sin. It only affects me. Your sin affects much more than just you, and your walk with God affects much more than just you. If you walk with God for 30, 40, or 50 years consistently, your mind cannot fathom the people that God will bring into your life to bless and to to encourage. Who knows who you might reach in that 49th year of walking with the Lord. However, if you neglect to walk with the Lord for 30, 40, or 50 years, there will be no 49th year of fruitfulness in your life because there was never a first year. And so your children, so many people in your life, they're going to be looking to you for a strong walk with the Lord. And when you have one over years and long periods of time, God will open up doors for you. You will reach more and more people as a result of your relationship with him. Now in verse 11, there's a wonderful description of what happened when Moses went into that tent. It says, Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. This is a language that describes a deep fellowship uh, with God. Now, obviously, this does not indicate that Moses was seeing the full illumination of God's glory, as we'll see later on in this chapter. But it speaks of a real openness between God and man, a real openness between God and Moses, a clear and open relationship. And the reality is that the blood of Christ has won for us this opportunity for deep fellowship uh, with God. He will speak to you face to face. He will encourage you. He will fellowship with you if you allow him that time and that space. The access is won by the blood of Jesus. We come to, to God now boldly to his throne of grace, finding grace and mercy to help us in our time of need because of the great victory that Christ has won for us. And when Moses, verse 11, turned again into the camp, his assistant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. Now we don't know why Joshua would not depart from the tent. Perhaps he was serving Moses in some kind of way, cleaning up in the tent or tending to the tent or maybe guarding the tent from others. It doesn't specifically say what Joshua did. We just know that Joshua was uh, Moses' 
protege. He was learning from Moses. I don't know exactly what he was doing, but I just love the phrase, he would not depart from the tent. Moses, of course, representative of the law, which is often representative of a sporadic relationship with God, an off and on kind of relationship with God. Uh, This would be revealed in later chapters where you would see Moses' face glowing as a result of this fellowship with God, but then fading. Joshua is a picture of Christ uh, who fulfilled the law, who got into the promised land. In fact, Joshua and Jesus share the same uh, name. And so uh, their names mean the same thing. And so Joshua, in one sense, he does not depart from the tent. In other words, he has continual, unbroken fellowship with God. Could perhaps be one way uh, to look at this particular text. So, just a beautiful thing, though. He would not depart from the tent. Now, verse 12, it says that Moses said to the Lord. And so he goes now into the tent. And we have a record of part of his prayer life before the Lord. He says, see... You say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. And so Moses now here is going to have a three-part prayer before the Lord. Verse 12, verse 15, and verse 18. Three separate cries from Moses unto uh, God. And so Moses first says to him, well, listen, Lord, uh, you're telling me to bring the people into the promised land, but I don't know who it is that you're going to send with me. God had promised in chapter 32 and then in verse 2 of this chapter had promised to send his angel or an angel at the very least to be with Moses and to go before Moses. But Moses was unaware of of his identity. And so he says back to the Lord, so, you know, you've told me that you're sending someone, but I don't know who they are, yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. So he's saying, listen, God, you have told me that you know me, but I don't know who you will send with me. I think in one sense, Moses is beginning to give the hint that he is longing for deeper knowledge and revelation of who God is. So he says in verse 13, Now therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways, that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider too that this nation is your people. So Moses' request is real simple. He's saying, Lord, I want to know you. I want to know who you are. You've told me that you would send someone with me, but you've also told me that you know me. Lord, I want to know you. I want to find that favor in your sight that you've told me that is mine. Show me your ways. I want to know you. Lord, go with us. He's making a request of of the presence of God with them as they go into the promised land. And the Lord, verse 14, it says, And he said, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. This is fascinating because this interaction between God and Moses 
it seems as if God was simply looking for a man who wanted the presence of the Lord in his life. He wanted not just the promised land. I, I think there would be many who would hear God say, hey, listen, I'll send my angel before you. You'll defeat the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hittites. You're going to defeat everybody. Don't worry. I'm still going to give you a land flowing with milk and honey. I'm just not going with you. I think there are many who would say, well, that's fine. That's fine, Lord. You do what you want. You, you're an ominous God. You're holy. You're righteous. And I'm sure you've got better things to do. But for me, what I really want is just a good land, peace, a land flowing with milk and honey. But Moses was one of these men who was not content with the blessings from God. He wanted the God who blesses. He wanted God. He wanted the presence of God. He wanted fellowship with God. And and really, a person who desires God also gets to partake of great and incredible blessing in this life. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change, James says in James 1, verse 17. All of God's blessings are wrapped up inside of his presence and uh, so many of his blessings are nothing and empty without him you need God you need his presence and that was the humble request of Moses God go with us God be with us God I long for your presence and so God says I will go with you you've passed the test Moses I can see that you long to be a man in fellowship with me and he said to him, verse 15, prayer request number two from Moses, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight? Again, he keeps clinging to that promise that he had found favor in the sight of the Lord. I and your people, is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth. <clears throat> so Moses again clarifies his request. Lord, please, if your presence will not go, do not bring us up. I don't want a mere angel. I want you to actually be with us. I want your presence. Now it's interesting because he wanted the presence of God, not just so that he could know the Lord, but so that the Lord could receive great glory. Because in verse 16, he's basically saying, listen, Lord, if you send us into the promised land with a mere angel, how are the nations around us going to know who you are, that we are distinct, and that we belong to you? People need to know about you, and they need to know about you through your interactions with us. They're going to watch our lives to come to a conclusion about who you are. So be strong on our behalf. Go with us, Lord, and receive the glory that is due your name. This is a wonderful way for us to pray. Jesus said much of the same in Matthew chapter 6. When he introduced the Lord's Prayer to his disciples, he said, you pray like this. Father, who are in heaven hallowed be thy name. Really, that's prayer request number one, that the name of God would be hallowed, that it would be honored, that it would be set apart, that it would be 
glorified. Really, overarching all of our prayers should be this sense of, God, don't even answer this prayer unless you get glory from it. And God, here's a prayer of mine, and I desire this because I want you to have ultimate glory through my life. Moses is saying, God, it's for your name. I want your name to be hallowed. That's why I long that you would go with us, that people would know that we're distinct so that they might know who you are. And the Lord said, verse 17, to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do. For you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. And so Moses, again, receives the confirmation of his request from the Lord, speaking face to face, God being open with him. He says, listen, Moses, I will do it. I will go with you, gives him that confirming word. But what a wonderful thing, Moses, praying for the people, interceding for the people. Now, Moses said in verse 18, and here we have prayer request number three. He's prayed for God's presence He's prayed for God's presence so that God could receive glory. Here he just comes out and says it. Moses said, verse 18, please show me your glory. He just wants to see God. You just have to appreciate Moses and his heart to know the Lord better, to have a deeper understanding and knowledge of God. This is a man whose appetite had truly been whetted for the main course He'd seen God at the burning bush. He'd heard God face to face. He'd seen parts of God's glory. But now he wanted to just know the Lord in fullness. I want to see everything about you, Moses said. And so God said, verse 19, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But, he said, verse 20, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And so the Lord promises Moses, he says, listen, I'm going to let all of my goodness pass before you. Now, what does that mean? It means that God's character and nature would be known to Moses. He, he would have a revelation of uh, who God is. And then he says, and I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. Moses would actually hear the name of God, the reputation of the Lord. And then God makes this statement. He says, listen, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. The, the sovereign choice of God. He's saying, listen, I pour out grace and I pour out mercy on whom I will. But, in verse 20, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said in verse 21, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft on the, of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. In other words, Moses uh, hears from the Lord, and, and the Lord says to him, listen, Moses, you can't really see my face. You can't see the what that means is the full, exhaustive uh, presence of God. You can't see me. You can't see me and actually live. So you can see my back, not a literal back because God is spirit, 
but the afterglow of God's presence. You can see that. You can hear my name. That's the best that I can do. This passage shows us, however, that people can know God. Uh, We can't know him exhaustively, but we can know God. However, let's close with this from Hebrews chapter 1. The writer tells us in verse 2 that in these last days, God has spoken to us by his Son. Not from the cleft of the rock, but by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. This is Jesus. We have the greatest revelation of God that mankind has ever known, greater than what Moses received in the cleft of that rock in Jesus Christ, the righteous. God bless you and amen. Thank you for listening. For additional resources and teachings, or to contact us, please visit us at nateholdridge.com.